0: Chapter 19 of Turns About Town by Robert Cortez Holiday. This LibreVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19, A Humorist's Notebook. I admit that, though indeed I can claim a very fair collection of authors as acquaintances, I share the popular interest in the idiosyncratic nature of the literary profession. I am as curious as to the occult workings of the minds of authors. The esoteric process by which subtle insinuations of inspiration are translated into works of literary art as though i had never seen an author off a platform i would read the riddle of genius i am fascinated by its impenetrable mysteries i would explore the recesses of the creative head therefore in the presence of the treasure of such incalculable value which is before me I experience tense intellectual excitement. In the thought of its possession by myself, I find this uttermost felicity. What it is, is this. It is a humorous writer's notebook. I must tell you the wonderful story, how this came into my hands, and how, romantically enough, it is, so to say, by the bequest of the author himself, your own possession." The strange circumstances are as follows. Something like a week ago I received through the post at my place of residence an oblong package. It was similar in shape to an ordinary brick, not so heavy, and somewhat larger. I had ordered nothing from a shop, and so, as the parcel was plainly addressed to myself, I concluded that it must contain a present, as I am very fond of presents, I was, with much eagerness, about to open the package when I suddenly recollected the newspaper reports of the recent dastardly Bolshevist bomb plots, the sending through the mails, by some apparently organized agency, to prominent persons in all parts of the country, these skillfully disguised engines of death and destruction. They were outwardly, I recalled, innocent-looking parcels which, when opened, blew housemaids to bits, demolished dwellings, and, in some instances, accomplished the murder of the personage who had incurred the enmity of the criminals. I bounded some considerable distance away from the object before me, though, after a moment, I did indeed reflect that I was not what would probably be regarded as an eminent citizen, and had never felt a sense of power in the government of my country i could not dissolve a decided distaste toward my undoing this mysterious parcel also i did not enjoy seeing it remain there on my table and further i had no inclination to carry it from the room in this dilemma it occurred to me to summon the janitor of the apartment-house where i reside when i had explained to him that because of my having a sore thumb which made it painful for me to handle things. I wished him to open this package for me. When I explained this to him, he told me that he was very much occupied at the moment, mending the boiler downstairs, and that he must hasten to that occupation, otherwise the lower floors would shortly be flooded, and he withdrew without further ceremony. I sat down to consider the situation. I realized that it was a bothersome moral responsibility, placing the lives of others, even if janitors, in jeopardy. But something must be done, and done soon. Perhaps there was a time-fuse in this thing. A thought came to me. The buzzer of our dumbwaiter sounded at the moment. I decided to go further down the scale in the value of human life to be risked. So I communicated down the shaft to our ice man, one Jack, that I desired his presence in the apartment. Well, the upshot of the matter is that Jack showed no hesitation whatever about coolly putting the package in a pail of water and afterward undoing it. The parcel proved to be an ordinary cigar box, labeled outside, in the decorative fashion of cigar box labels, Angels of Commerce. Within was a letter resting upon a notebook, and beneath that the manuscripts of two short stories— the submersion of the box would have most disastrously obliterated or gone near to obliterating the message of the letter and the writing in the notebook and the manuscript had not happily these things been packed tightly into the box by surrounding waste paper the letter was from taffy topaz known to us all a humorist if there ever was one i cannot say that i had been on intimate terms with mr topaz indeed to admit the truth all my acquaintance with authors is slight i admire authors so much that it is the joy of my life to be acceptable to them in any degree i put myself in their way at every opportunity i regard it as a great privilege as certainly it is to spend freely of my income in entertaining them at meals and in this way and that it is that i have attained the honor of hobnobbing with a number of writers when they are not otherwise engaged as i say i had not been on intimate terms with mr topaz and so i was no little surprised and i admit no little flattered at this decided attention whatever it might mean to me the letter was not oh not at all a humorous letter it was a very solemn letter. It said that Mr. Topaz was just about to go to the war. I was, naturally, puzzled at this. The war is, theoretically, over. I hunted round and found a piece of the wrapping paper which had enclosed the box. On it was the postmark. The paper had dried somewhat, and the stamp bore the date of October 1st, 1917, I was still more puzzled as to where the box could have been all this while. Then I recollected the heroic labors of the post office in maintaining any kind of schedule of delivery during the war. My poor friend's box had been goodness knows where all this time. The letter stated, as I have said, that Mr. Topaz was about to go to the war as a newspaper correspondent. It said, oh, it almost made one weep, so solemn, was it, that he might never return from over there. In case he did not come back, the letter continued, he, Mr. Topaz, wished me to undertake the charge of placing the enclosed manuscripts with some magazine or magazines. The money got from them, though it was inadequate, he knew. So he said. He prayed that I would accept as payment for the advances which I had made him from time to time. Alas, my poor friend, what were those miserable loans compared to the wealth of his society? How I remember that proud day when he called me, so pal-like, a poor fish. But this is not a time to indulge one's grief. I must press on with my story. The remainder of his literary efforts, he said, meaning, of course, the notebook, he desired me, as he knew I had some connection with a certain magazine. To present to the editor of that journal, little more remains to be said here of Mr. Topaz, my friend. He was not called upon to lay down his life for his country or his paper. After the armistice, he went valiantly into Germany, and there, as the papers have reported, he contracted a marriage and is little likely again to be seen in these parts. The first page of the notebook contained these entries. It is headed, Jottings. Good name for a small orphan, Tommy Crandall. Fat person, shrugged his stomach. Name for a spendthrift, Charles Spending. Aphorism, fear makes cowards of us all. Billy Sparks, fine name for a lawyer. Nice name for a landlady, Mrs. Baggs. Humorous Christian name for a fat boy, Moscow. Name for a clerk, Mr. Fife. Good name for someone to cry out on a dark night, Peter Clue, Peter Clue. Good name for a sporting character, Bob Paddock. Aphorism, a fool and his foot are soon in it. Good name for a tea room in Greenwich Village, the bad egg. Epigrammatic remark, though somewhat down in the mouth, he kept a stiff upper lip then follows this on umbrellas evidently the opening of an unwritten essay and like umbrellas with their feathers shield you in all sorts of weathers michael drayton among all the ingenious engines which man has contrived for his ornament and protection none certainly is more richly idiosyncratic than the umbrella literary genius has always instinctively recognized this and doubtless the esoteric fact has been vaguely felt even by the unthinking but it is a profound truth which i fear has had but slight popular appreciation the use of this historic and peculiarly eloquent article of personal property the umbrella illustrates pictorially a proverbial allusion to the manifestation of intelligence it shows that a man has sense enough to go in out of the rain it reveals not only the profundity of his judgment but the extraordinary play of his cleverness as it exhibits him as the only animal who after crawling into his hole figuratively speaking pulls his hole in after him or in other words carries his roof with him further than this in the idea of carrying an umbrella you find the secret of man's striking success in the world. The intrepidity of his spirit in his tenacious pursuit of his own affairs defies both the black cloud's damp and the sun's hot eye. There is this headed humor. There was once a man who was nearly dead from a disease. One day, while taking the air, a friend cried to him encouragingly, "'Well, I see that you're up and about again.' Yes, replied the sick man, good-naturedly, I'm able to walk the length of the block now. This notion was so irresistible that both the quick and the dying burst into laughter. Among the longer entries in this notebook is the following remarkable psychological study, having as its title, Temperament. That morning, Kendall had seen himself famous. As he worked, he began to feel good in his brain, and in his heart, and in his stomach. He felt virile, elated, full of power, and strangely happy. The joy of creating a thing of art was upon him. Thrills ran down his spine and into his legs. As he looked at his work, he admired it. He knew that this was good art. He felt that here was genius. He saw himself in a delectable picture, an idol applauded of the multitude and loved by it for he believed that the multitude was born and ate and slept and squabbled among itself, and acquired property and begot offspring but to await the arrival of genius and the only genius he knew was genius in eccentric painting and only genius worth while that is for there is a genius that invents labor-saving machines telephones x-rays and so forth but nobody loves that genius it occurred to him that he was a very lovable man, with all his faults—his faults were the lovable ones of genius—and he would soon have achieved a distinction that would make any woman proud of him. He determined to renew his addresses to blank. Somehow in the evening his intoxication had died down. He felt very sad. His work lay before him with so little eccentricity to it that he was ashamed. His sense of power had quite departed, and now he dismally felt that he would never amount to anything. He was a failure, an idle, wicked, disgraceful fellow. No good in the world, and not worth any woman's attention. His heart felt sick when he thought this. He was very miserable. He despised himself. So he sighed. It would have been better, he thought if he had apprenticed himself to the plumber's trade in his boyhood. He would in that case have grown up happy and contented, remained at home and done his duty, respected by his neighbors and himself, though only a plumber. A plumber is a good, honest man that pays his debts. At home? Why was he not there, anyway? What good was he doing away from there? There was his mother in her declining years, was his place not by her side? He would never desert his mother, he thought. And sis, there was sis. He would never desert sis. How good they had been to him. How they believed in him, he squirmed. How they believed in him still. He imagined them showing his most sensible pictures around to the neighbors. My son is an artist, he heard his mother say. His flesh crawled how mad he had been, how contemptible he was. Still, a man was not hopeless who had a soul for such feelings as he had now. He would reform. He would henceforth eschew the company of such as Walker. He enumerated his vices and renounced them one by one. He began life over again. He would bask in the simple domestic pleasures of his mother in her declining years, and sis, he would get up very early every morning and go to his humble toil before it was quite light. He felt himself walking along in the chill of dawn, the street lamps still lit. He would work hard all day. He would always tell the truth. Every Saturday night he would come home tired out with fifteen dollars in his pocket. This he would throw into his mother's lap. Here, mother, he would say, in a fine, manly voice. Here are fifteen dollars. His mother would put her apron to her eyes and look at him through tears of pride and joy. He would wear old clothes and be very honest and upright-looking, the sort of young man that Russell Sage would have approved, that Sis might dress. He would not mind the sneers and jibes of the world, for he would be right. He looked defiantly around the room for a few sneers and jibes, End of chapter 19, recording by Tom Penn.